you never heard of. Hey everybody, welcome to the Common Folk Podcast with Ben, Morgan, and Andy. Welcome back to Common Folk. There we go. The podcast for the people, by the people. That's right. That's right. You like that tagline, Cal? I do. Pretty good. Got a, uh, <laughs> we're down. We're down one today. We're we down are. a co-host. We are. How's I, Morgan doing? Uh, Sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty good. She's doing the rim-to-rim walk. I think we'll probably talk about that in a yeah. future episode. Yeah, I want to hear about it. Um, And normally she's sitting right here next to me, so now I got someone not quite as attractive sitting next to me you would you'd buy that right oh yeah, yeah. you're right on <laughs> i mean you're better but i guarantee you're right <laughs> so what, who we got andy what's up uh kyle lechtenberg uh a guy that uh, grew up in my neck of the woods uh back in boyd county um it was kind of a fun rivalry between the three towns there lynch spencer and butte um and in a lot of cases because back in our day our numbers were dwindling then too um, being rural in Nebraska and all that, uh, we would always consolidate for some sports and baseball being one of them. And I, Kyle, I think, I, I think I was on a team with you maybe once. Uh, you might've been a little young. Younger. Yeah, we were about every other year, I think. I just didn't play mm-hmm. enough. So you never knew mm-hmm. I was on your team. No, <laughs> <laughs> we, we, but, you, there were some stud athletes from Butte that were on some of our best baseball teams. So, so you guys about the same age? Yeah, you were one grade ahead of me, and so um, usually we were on the same baseball team every other year. Competed in other sports every year, though. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So, um, Andy, I'll let you run with this, but to start with uh, my understanding of one of the things that we wanted to talk about today was some foreign ownership in uh, farm ground in the U.S., um, and I guess in property in general, and a couple specific topics uh, surrounding that. But before we got into that, I was hoping we could start by kind of going through some of the history with our guest, um, why he's here to talk about that. Like, what is it that he does and and who he is? Right. So the headline that kind of captured everybody and came out about a week ago, and I saw it in Fortune magazine, uh, was Saudi Arabia is pumping water on 10,000 acres of drought-stricken Arizona ground, and the new governor, Hobbs, who won a real tight race, you know, that's interesting too. You know, the Democrat moved in mm-hmm. to save the day. And first thing she does is save the day by stripping the Saudi Arabia company from their water rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you go down the rabbit hole and read this article, and it's like, oh, wow. So Saudi Arabia just had this free reign to pump as much water as they wanted to on alfalfa fields that they would cut and farm year-round, which that's a big drawback for Nebraska and South Dakota, mm-hmm. which used to be, you know, the world's some of the world's greatest alfalfa ground. Well, we're hamstrung by stupid winter. we got to stop producing hay in winter. Arizona now is better at it because they can do it year-round. Um, so anyhow. Or can they? Well, <laughs> we're they, out, they are. Out. <laughs> they we're are. We're finding out. Yeah, we're finding out. So anyhow, this this article comes out, and you, you really I, – I, I like your, your two perspectives on it. was like, let's read it. Let's try to consume it and take a step back and, and break it down because on the surface, it's pretty loony to think that uh, Saudi Arabians have come to America, bought farm ground, farm it year-round for alfalfa, ship it back to their dairy cattle in the middle of Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. and that's that. Like, that's a – it is, a win, 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 win for everybody. Wild. Yeah, it's wild. It just so on the surface that you know it doesn't even 
how did it get there? You know, is my question. So I brought in Kyle because Kyle owns and operates a farm up in Boyd County. And you guys do a lot of alfalfa, right? Yes. Yeah. And actually, as you were talking there, I was thinking at at one point in time, we were the second largest alfalfa grower in the state of Nebraska, and okay. we were actively trying to buy the first. Mm. So uh, the alfalfa component of this article, <clears throat> I could come at it from that angle. Uh, fast forward to d- today, I'm actually a large ag estate planner. And so... Um, and then my wife and I served on it two years on an American Farm Bureau uh, committee where we helped facilitate conferences and, mm-hmm. and went around more on the um, bureaucratic and political side of some of these issues. And so so that's probably, you know, I could take a stab at this from about three different angles. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and so it's, it's you know, it's, it's a lot. There's a lot of layers here, I would say. There is a lot of layers. And, and that's a big reason why I want to get you on, not only for the... I would have wanted you just for the alfalfa perspective anyway, right? Sure. Because it sounds to me like, well, this is kind of putting a dent in your livelihood as far as being a alfalfa guy from Nebraska, uh, having, you know, people from overseas come in and make their own alfalfa and kind of kind of cheating, right? They're like they're just growing alfalfa year-round, unregulated irrigation as well, where I know my farm in Boyd County, which – I, we don't have a lot of farm ground, but we've got that alfalfa field along sure. the highway. Yep, I know where it is. Yep. We're not allowed to irrigate. I can't put a pivot there. Yep. But mm-hmm. Saudi Arabians can in Arizona on 10,000 acres? <laughs> right. Huh. And so, not be regulated? Oh. Strange. Okay. It's strange. Yeah. So, you, Kyle, you touched a little bit on, um, you know, a little bit of your background being in farming, um, growing alfalfa. You know, touch on some of those things a little bit more along with what your current job is today so we can help folks understand like kind of where you're coming from. Well, I, I want to start back about 2006 to 2008 when I was a, a typical farm kid from Nebraska. Uh, my parents actually both worked off the farm, but we had a small farm as well, just similar, mm-hmm. very similar to Andy's upbringing. And I had a I had a big passion to farm, and I went to a conference in St. Louis, Missouri, with a um, company. They're now called Uncommon Farms. They probably haven't heard of them, but they're a small company over there. And a friend of mine took me and another guy to it, and they basically painted this picture that um, if you weren't growing your farm at a very large scale, it's going to be tough to tough to stay in in business tough mm-hmm. to stay stay in the in the mold of growing a farm and i i really bought into it big i really realized from a cuz i i came at farm i didn't have anything really to move home to in terms of resources so i was looking for that competitive advantage to get into farming and i and through college i worked through a, for a commercial um uh, alfalfa operation not too far from here actually right outside of Ashland mm. and that gentleman and I put together a farm transition to where I could move that business up to Boyd County and do commercial hay up there commercial alfalfa and so it was your your family so at that time you were in college yep. when, when you were talking about this time frame Yep. So prior to that, you, was your family growing alfalfa? Is that how you came Not up? Not really. Okay. They, we might have had a field or two, um, but it was usually done by the neighbor or gotcha. rented yep. out. Yep. It wasn't – I'm number five of eight on a quarter of ground with okay. a teacher yep. and a nurse. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we – you know, most of our uh, upbringing was carrying buckets to pets. Gotcha. It, it yep. didn't. Yep. It wasn't the farming you think yep. of sure. today, or yep. even at that time, really. It was more. 
as my dad would put it, it was it was ingrained in us to teach us how to work. Mm-hmm. It really Absolutely. wasn't an yeah. economic thing from that yep. perspective. Yep. So yeah, just to get to get an idea of that. So then you went to school and then you started kind of seeing some of these things. And yeah, got involved I worked with, for a hay farm, alfalfa yep, farmer, yep, and yep. I remember you know fast forward to what I'm doing today, financial planning. One of my first conversations with him was I wanted to build an agriculture accounting program. Mm-hmm. And so uh, alfalfa financials, they've kind of always been part of my life. And, and so that's those are the things that I know about, I was guess. Was finance what you went to school for? <clears throat> Ag economics. Ag yep. economics, okay. Yep. So, yeah, through that, took uh, Dr. Hansen out of Lincoln. He's probably the best mentor I have. We've had him come up and speak with landlords and vendors through events with our farm at that time and and um, do do different estate planning workshops and and stuff so I, some of that's really always been passionate and I, I as I read this article I thought about the larger theme here there's so many baby boomers across the country that are go- going to be exiting the agriculture industry mm-hmm. and the the bigger issue that I see with this article is is that real estate is going to transition as well. And so I have a, a whole dialogue that we were just talking about ahead of the show, some of my old committee members at the American Farm Bureau and some close friends that I talked to about coming on this show and talking about these larger themes of dynamics of, of wealth coming down the pipeline to companies that honestly aren't set up to operate at that scale. And so when you, when you talk about 10,000 acres of alfalfa year round, Mm -hmm. I get PTSD personally. (laughs) We were doing over 12,000 tons of alfalfa per year at at my farm. Mm -hmm. When I was, now I'm passively farming. When I was active farming, it was, and that was seasonal, as you know. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, the the winter time we spent a lot of time trucking and hiring trucks and dispatching trucking all over the country. We sent hay from just about to every state. And so, when I think of the organization behind that many acres of alfalfa, and again down there, it's a lot easier to um, to you. You don't have the rain issues you have. You, I mean, you got controlled water on, water yeah. off. Yeah. Hopefully, in mm-hmm. this case, you got the state government mandates and stuff. So, um, so yeah, it's, you know, I feel like th- this topic we could take days on. So I'll do oh, yeah. my best to fit it into what you well, guys you, got for me. You've already t- touched on a couple of things that I didn't even realize, and I'm sure we'll get into those. But um, one of these things that you were saying there towards the end that just kind of like turned a light bulb on for me, when I first read this, I was thinking to myself, these idiots of everywhere they could go in the United States mm-hmm. went to Arizona like one of the driest places around and mm-hmm. bought up land and and leases and whatever and decided they were going to grow hay. Mm-hmm. Like what in the heck is wrong with them? But then what you just said right there, it actually it kind of makes sense because if they don't care about their impact, mm-hmm. they don't live here, and they can turn water on and off, they don't have to worry about rain wrecking hay laying on the ground. Yeah. You know, whatever else goes along with it, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and when I started doing a little research – uh, for this because I man when I go down a rabbit hole I go mm-hmm. right I'm like oh man because I'll have questions in my head that I want the answers to and I watched uh, I listened to a, a little interview with this guy on this subject or it, it branches off of it but I think it was like in the early 2000s he had a color print ad from a farm journal that it just straight up said water issues 
None here. Move to Arizona. Move your. We had no water regulations whatsoever in Arizona. Mm. Pump all you want, however you want, for as much as you want. So, like, here's just an ad selling ag land in Arizona. And this is a, a nationwide farming journal. Just straight up saying, if you have water issues in Nebraska, let's say Boyd County, forget about it. Move that operation to Arizona, and you won't have to worry about water regulations getting in the way. Mm. And on top of that, you have a 24-7, 365 growing season. Right. Mm-hmm. And if, if you do the math <laughs> in the article, <clears throat> excuse me, the the land value is another competitive advantage. The you know, if you take and I this was very quick math from the article, but I think it put per irrigated acre at about forty seven hundred an acre, roughly. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. kind of broad forty thousand foot stroke. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at what local land values are, we're near Iowa here, up in Boyd County, they're a little lower, but um those are pretty low yeah. land values. Nobody mm-hmm apparently wants to buy land there and farm it. Mm-hmm. And so there's a there's a competitive advantage component that I think foreign entities are looking at. <clears throat> if we can kind of go out here in the middle of nowhere and grow help secure our own yeah. food supply, that's an attractive thing for them. Yeah. So, yeah, and then I, you know, just talking to Andy a little bit ahead of time, I I th- look at this thing kind of you have you have a political component to it. You have a bureaucratic component, which I want to differentiate that because the bureaucratic piece is the federal, state, and local rules that you're mm-hmm. you're very much subject to. Like you mentioned, you can't um, pump out of the Ponca Creek, Ponca Creek right yeah. there. Yep. Funny story. Um, we had a 1956 L.J. Lechtenberg water right on the Ponca Creek. Mm-hmm. They're, if they go dormant for five years, they're technically supposed to close off the – Forever. Yeah, the yeah. registration leaves. Well, probably 10 years ago, a little more than that, I, I they hadn't closed it. And I said, well, it's not closed now. I want to use that water right. And we actually got a, a Ponca Creek system in place from a 1956 water yep. light. We were able hmm. to do that. And so that was a state – that was a state rule – um, that there superseded are, Boyd. That yeah. superseded the county. You took the me The county that. would be you the NRD. That well, I think. I probably did. I'm yeah, sure I, I show there. everybody that. It was the first yeah. dr- uh, subsurface drip irrigation system in the area. And so not only were we able to get that right, but we were able to put in a system that was very efficient, um, mm-hmm. known today as the most efficient for irrigation. But all that to say that there was – we didn't have to deal with any federal entity. It was just the mm-hmm. NRD, lo- which is local governing, yeah. and then the state DNR. We also had to get uh, kind of cleared past them. And they do manage the gallons per minute uh, loosely. It's it's not it's not very – you just have to submit a report like every three years sure. or something like that. So I don't know the Arizona laws well mm-hmm. enough to know, but I, I think you're seeing a situation where they have low land values, they have loose compliance, and you mm-hmm. got a country that wanted to secure some – secure – that help secure their food supply. So – As a capitalist person, I would need to know more to argue it, to be totally Mm -hmm. blind. Now, I know politically that isn't always the right thing to say because there's also political wins. You mentioned a Democratic governor. I I don't know. Arizona always seems like one of those states that's kind of back and forth. forth. It really is. And and so 
so yeah, I think the the political dynamic. I know being part of the American Farm Bureau, <laughs> which is very both. You know, it's a very red and blue organization. It's out to help all of agriculture, mm-hmm. and they would you know very much, very much want to look at the full issue before yeah. Um, just broad stroking it one direction or the other. Well, and a huge part of the component that I maybe we, we missed was all this water is available due to an aquifer underneath the state, much like the Ogallala mm-hmm. Aquifer in Nebraska. Um, and we have states down around the Gulf of Mexico to Texas to Kansas all trying to tell Nebraska how to manage our aquifer. Um, and it's the same thing happening in Arizona that allows uh, for the, all this pumping right now. Um, and, and what's really ignited, in my mind, what's ignited a lot of this was, um, and this is a poor county too. It's all, uh, what the heck's the name of this county? Uh, pa, Pawnee or something. Uh, anyway, it's a, a population of like 16,000 people, a lot of trailer parks and like retired folks that are just living on a, a little income and they just have their own little private well that goes about 600 feet down. Those wells are running dry now. Mm-hmm. And you have these super farms from Saudi Arabia and other places that are drilling down 1,200, some of them 2,400 feet. So they don't care if a 600 foot, <laughs> you know, uh, it's about procurement like we're talking about here and having farm are watering our year round crop. And our 1,200 foot well isn't, eh, it shouldn't run dry for another nine years at least. I mean, that's the data we're getting back. So it also helps them to <laughs> run dry these yeah. other wells because yeah. then they're not pumping out of it. So uh, it's tough to be mad at this this corporation when they're just doing what a corporation is supposed to do, right? Y- if you look at it from that standpoint. Yeah, and the, some of those depths, I, I didn't remember that from the article. That might have been some of your extra research, but mm-hmm. those are very deep wells. Yeah. I mean, to think that there they're at some point probably should be some state regulation if – Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's some mandates coming on board now, but maybe building yeah. some some better policy around that to to yeah. help protect the natural resources of our country. Yeah. So uh, uh, La Paz, La Paz County is what what it's called, and one of the articles that I was reading goes all the way back to 1980, and that was the formation of this county. And the gal that was giving this interview says, "I think the whole reason this county was made." created in 1980 was for water rights, period. Because in 1982, a bunch of legislation got written into law where Arizona, Tucson, they all had water regulations. They could only use so much water per capita. Was Las Vegas in that mix? I thought I read them too, that there was some... Some of this water that feeds it comes out of the Colorado River. That's maybe what I saw. um, But La Paz, all the, you know fourth generation farmers and ranchers there put up a big stink about it and got it turned their way where they weren't regulated. So if they were using the water in a very gray area, uh, beneficial use or something like that, (laughs) like what's beneficial use, right? Uh, They could sell their water rights to a city, uh, use it all on the farm, just run it down the drain if they want, but they could pump as much water as they wanted, but it was self-regulated. No regulation from state, county, or federal. So you virtually put in a green light to do sounds whatever, like however. The farmers made their bed, sounds like. A I little mean, bit here, yeah. And now the land's going out of, out of their hands and mm-hmm. who's the buyer? So you're talking about a symptom, right? 
I'll, I'll take you guys back a little further. We we're just talking about 1980. So in 1973, when all the the oil embargoes started happening, mm-hmm. and they had that big war in the Middle East, and that's when United States just went in a tizzy because I think gas prices quadrupled uh, in some areas of the of the nation. Well, what we did to counteract that, we put an embargo on wheat and our and our food. Mm-hmm. We stopped sending food to the Middle East. And the Middle East shot back and said, "Okay, we're not going <laughs> to. We're, yeah, we're not right. going to send you oil, then you yeah. dummies." Um, well, n- some folks in Saudi Arabia figured out, "Oh, we got an aquifer here," so they drilled down and s- set out just real aggressive subsidies to local farmers in Saudi Arabia to um, irrigate their own crops. And from 1973 up to about the early 2000s, late 1990s. Saudi Arabia was the sixth largest wheat exporter in the world. Hmm. Russia, United States, Saudi Arabia, you know, there for wheat. Strange. Uh, well, they figured out it took them about 20 years to run that thing dry to where catastrophic. Like now, now the land's going to collapse. It's just crazy mm-hmm. stuff like that. So um, now it's basically illegal to raise alfalfa in Saudi Arabia. And the government turned to 180 said, not, not only do you not have a subsidy to just, you know, pump as much water as you want and grow whatever you want, however you want, it's illegal. Figure it out somewhere else. Hmm. So now you're having companies like they're scrambling. And a lot of these farms are in Argentina uh, and other places. Um, and only about 3 to 5% are here in the United States. But the fact that, yeah, they're a half a world away and Arizona's in the middle of a terrible drought and they're saying – there's no regulation. We're within the law. Pump it. Pump it. Mm-hmm. We need more for our dairy farm here that we built in the early 70s on up to now. There's a hundred in this one farm uh, that is catching a lot of the flack has 160,000 dairy cattle in Saudi Arabia and they need to feed them. And they don't have all this farm ground that used to be limitless water to just a few years ago. Can, could you imagine the cost associated with growing all that hay here mm-hmm. and then moving it over there? I mean, how does that, how does that even... Goes to a port in California, then shipped over to Saudi Arabia. But how does that even pencil out? Well, it's it's interesting because I, I think of my goal back kind of in my alfalfa prime, I always wanted to export alfalfa. <clears throat> to my knowledge, it never got done. If somebody beyond <laughs> our sale <laughs> got it overseas, good, good for them. But mm-hmm. I never did get that done. But... It goes back to if you've got $20,000 an acre ground locally here, and there's been sales to prove those plus. Yeah, yeah. And and the ground down there is $4,000 an acre or $5,000 an acre, and it's the equal – it's the same productivity. Yeah, there's a lot in logistics to get it trucked to a port and then get it – my understanding of um, shipping containers is they traditionally are extremely cheap. They're they're very. Mm-hmm. It's not that's not even the expensive part of the export. It's it's finding the right uh, brokers that are honest that aren't going to gouge you and, mm-hmm. and make sure you mm-hmm. get a consistent flow of products overseas. So it's it becomes more of a political bureaucratic thing. So if you can, you know, if you're if you're producing hay on that kind of ground and you can get it to a port, it's it's competitive. I mean, it's you know we're. Obviously, and you would know some of these numbers, so tell me maybe some of this what you think about, but we've we've always raised horses here out on this property that that we're on right now. 
and we're down to just a couple. It's like a hobby deal now that my my mom still kind of has going on. But when I was a kid, we were buying from down the road alfalfa bales, you know, square bales, 70-ish pound bales, you know, that we'd feed these horses, real clean, nice hay for two bucks a bale, somewhere in that range, maybe three. It's like $90 a ton. Is that what mm-hmm. that probably equal out to somewhere in there? Yeah. Okay. So today, just within like the last couple of months, we bring in 100 bales from about the same distance and we're upwards of 12. Hmm. So, you know, we're looking at uh, what's been less than 20 years and that's that's how much we're dealing with. So if we were running the size of operation that we were running when we were paying $2 bale hay, you know, and it was like 30 horses out here. Now we've got two and we're paying $12 hay. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how we would make that work. It, right. it just wouldn't work. So then I think about that and I go, okay, if that hay is $12 a bale, which I know they're probably shipping big round bales and things like that, but either way you do the math and you're adding on top of that 12 continually, I, I just don't understand how they make it work. Well, that's a, there's a lot to that. Um, we So we shipped a lot of hay to Texas and I could never understand that either. Mm-hmm. I, I shipped hay right down the road from, from here. Ashland, Eagle, Nebraska mm-hmm. was where the commercial hay I started with was. And I, 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 I'm a ranch kid, came from north northeast Nebraska. And I, I asked my boss at that time, Dan Hanna, I said, how, how can people afford this? I mean, we can't raise cattle with these kind of values. Mm-hmm. And he said, land values. Their land is so expensive in Texas, they can't afford to grow hay on it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that <laughs> dynamic plays plays out on this Arizona farm because I I just go back to the land values. If you can produce irrigated products on $4,000 an acre ground mm-hmm. versus doing it here for $20,000 acre ground, there's, there's too much in that difference to go through in one podcast, but I can tell you it's, it, it's significant. And so yeah. they found a competitive edge and it sounds like the governor shut it off for now. And, and I think there's going to be a, a lot more con- conversation around right. policy. And the governor just shut off two, uh, two leases and that comes up in a few months. So they're still doing what they're doing. And on top of that, uh, when you really get into it, it looks like they, they didn't even do anything wrong as far as the water other than just not caring and being belligerent about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it's going across seas. Is there that element into it? We don't forget oh, about that. Politically, there's a huge, I, I haven't met one person that I've had this conversation with that is supportive of foreign ownership of our mm-hmm. land. Yeah. I will say back in 2006 when I was kind of choosing my career path, there was a big – a lot of your larger farms were looking at farmland. You mentioned Argentina. That mm-hmm. was a big push because they could grow two soybean crops in one year. There you mm-hmm. go. And so you had – I in, in hindsight, I think you had some really wealthy bored farmers in America with a lot of money. Mm. And they said, let's let's fly to Argentina and see what this is about. And I think over a decade of that, it wasn't overly successful for us being foreign ownership in other mm-hmm. countries' land. But I think we learned a lot. We know more about their markets. We sure. know that they don't have the distribution systems that we do. They've they've learned the hard way, essentially, on some of that. Yeah. And, and plus, you get into those other political environments. It's not as not as conducive for capitalistic yeah. economies. And, yeah. and so definitely in this situation with Saudi Arabia, they're, 
I'm sure that some of these things and policy being built around them as an example may, you know, they may have to pull back even if they, mm-hmm. even if it's purely all legal and they're doing everything right, it may not be in their best interest. Right. Yeah. It's it's going to, it's probably going to take a change here. And yeah, uh, that's one of the things that came up was get off your soapbox. Uh, United States owns a bunch of tomato farms in Mexico. Right. Canada, I, Canada owns we a bunch are, of farmland in mm-hmm. the United States. We are doing the same thing. And, yeah. and so that's the struggle I have with the farming community. It's just like you had given the example. The low, local farmers set local policies. Now they're having to live with them and they don't like them. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes there, there is there is political reasons. There's bureaucratic reasons to to develop new policy. I mean, I think yeah. that's the beauty of our system is we yeah. can we can go back and change the laws if we need to. On that topic, um, I've got some numbers that I wanted to look at and talk to you guys as well. But to rewind just real quick and kind of bring a little closure to that on the Arizona thing. Have you guys seen or read any of the articles about like just their water shortages in general? Mm-hmm. They're they're in a bad way right now with this drought. Yeah, they're and, in a real bad way. And it's all anytime I've been down there. My wife's family's from the Phoenix area, her okay. extended family, and every time we're down there, I always listen to the news. And and almost two decades, I water is almost on the news, if not every day. It's close mm-hmm. i mean so i think it's always a looming issue they're always in a drought right yeah. it's you, a desert right <laughs> yeah you you gotta wonder um you know when we hear about the saudi arabia thing or anything else mm-hmm. how is that actually going on when they can't even they don't have enough water for their cities right and there's that's probably a whole nother uh, conversation as far as like what they've done with growth and building houses and yeah their golf courses and all the things Ooh. that come along this that they have to continue to yeah. water. Yeah. But I was listening to a uh, to a to a story. It might have been a podcast or something. It might have been it might have been the New York Times. I've got an article up here from that. But um, they were talking about how they are looking into building these facilities down on the coast that are going to like. What do they call the process? Like desalinate? Yeah, it's yeah. in uh, Israel does this. Okay. They, yeah, I don't recall the actual process, but basically, yeah, they have a way to take seawater and filter out it. the salt. Yep, mm-hmm. and make it usable, con- consumable. Yeah, and, and then they're gonna they're gonna pipe that from the coast. So they were talking, mm-hmm. and I wish I would have listened to this again before we did this because it's been a few months since I heard it. But they have gone down to whatever country it was. And they're trying to make deals. Might be Turkey. I've I know of this process, yeah. but I can't remember all the yeah. specific players. It's Israel technology, and then it, I, I whatever. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. So they're trying to make deals like, hey, we're going to use your land. We're going to build this mm-hmm. huge facility. We're going to give you a bunch of jobs. Mm-hmm. There's going to be this huge pipe that's going to run right through the middle of your country, and also do a lot, go through a lot of other things. Like they're having to deal with some Native American tribes and trying to figure out how to get through this. You know what uh, the path is going to be. Yep, yep. But don't go through Boyd County, right? Yeah. Andy? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> what if you think about it? Like, what makes them think that they're so important that they're going to go down mm. and step all over these people do this and then run their pipe right through everybody's shit they don't care yeah so that we can make sure phoenix has water yeah because we vote because we've overbuilt the place and we're going to continue to overbuild it because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of money to be made there yeah we keep popping this stuff up and people keep coming yeah so we need water yeah and uh i i'm glad you went there because when i started kind of diving into this this isn't a new story like you're like you're talking about kyle like every time you're down there they're talking about water shortages and a drought and this and that and one of the more fascinating 
uh, 15-minute little docu-series that I found from NBC News was four years old. And what they were talking about, it, the the headline, draining Arizona, mm-hmm. mining water. You know, like, wow, that's pretty scary. You know, we're going to be out of water. They're just going to dry up down there, right? And uh, who this these people from NBC, real good journalists, they were attacking uh, United States farmers and mainly this corporation called IFC. Do you know these guys, International Farming Corporation? I don't. Uh, they're based out of North Carolina, and their whole gig is to find conducive areas like you're talking about that are cost prohibit, not you know competitive. Competitive. They, they want an advantage, or they're looking for a place yep. to operate competitively. And you better believe when IFC saw those ads in that farming journal that said no water regulations, they sent a guy down there to check it out, and like, wow, this is on the up and up. So let's buy 26 square miles. <laughs> so, and how IFC works. They own this. Com- they own the land. They buy as much land. They uh, do the, all the dirty pool stuff. Force the little guys out. All these things, just like you're seeing now. Um, four years ago, they were pumping water that was, you know, your little farmers. It costs about thirty thousand dollars to put a new drill in or drill it deeper. Well, they can't afford that. Blah blah blah. You know, we're on a fixed income. All right. Well, then buy this. It's worth more than what you have now anyway. So th- they were doing all those things, and a huge. They got a lot of backers too, right? A lot of money supporting this, a lot of investors, and that gets really great. You, you got to do a lot of digging to figure out, <laughs> IFC, where'd this come from? Mm-hmm. Where'd this corporation, how is this formed? Who's doing this? It's out of North Carolina. Don't worry about it. Uh, so their whole gig is they lease out this land, and they pump water, and they run cattle, and they do all these things. And then when it kind of gets to that, that brink, you know, where it's like, oh, something might be coming up here, they sell it at a premium because they can show this just mm-hmm. exponential growth. Mm-hmm. Hey, it went from nothing to now we have 8,000 cows, mm-hmm. dairy cattle, boom, right here in Arizona, no water regulations. So then they sell these farms, and this is what you're seeing. A few years ago, they sold all these farms to these Saudi Arabians who are like, we need alfalfa. We need this stuff mm-hmm. for our dairy farms. Mm-hmm. And it also it was a win-win for them because not only could they secure alfalfa, it was cheaper for them to just own the alfalfa ground Period. Mm-hmm. You know, they, you get to take over so many different things there. Uh, so now, and it would have been a good gig um, if IFC would have just kept running. I truly believe it because they weren't, they were just doing the typical dirty pool stuff, forcing the little guy out, not raising too big of a stink. The second they sold these farms, and now a Saudi Arabia guy, executive halfway around the world, is just poking the bear and, oh, yeah, you're in a drought. Well, we're going to up our <laughs> irrigation. That's what raised all the the questions. And then sent, uh, Governor Hobbs got on her high horse, like, this is an outrage, meh, 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 you know, and all this stuff. And so her, are, you, are you saying that maybe, like, the Saudis aren't so much of the bad guys that this is being made it, out to be? Exactly. I think they're just a symptom of this situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I always go back to sports analogies. Sure. And, like, okay, let's do the destruction of the Big Eight. Everyone likes to get mad at Texas. Big old bad Texas, right? And... I always say, I always credit them. You beat Nebraska when we're good. You beat us when we're bad. Now go F yourself, you know. Right. <laughs> you know, so. Um, but in how that was all formed, and every vote that went up to bring on those four schools, even slide Baylor in at the end there. What the hell is Baylor? They, you know. Um, uh, they have kind of made a name for themselves. But before that, who right. were they? Exactly. You know? exactly. Division two. Yeah. So uh, uh, every vote. Within the original charter members of the Big Eight went seven one, seven four, 
Nebraska against bringing them on. Uh, all the big ones that mattered, right? And in all that, all that thing that happened, Texas was the most honest. They said, we're coming in to dominate, and if we destroy your conference, so be it. We just did to the Southwest Conference. We don't care. Like, we're here to win. We're here to dominate and make the most money. We don't care if we destroyed Nebraska, Iowa State, is it Cyclones? Whatever you are, we are Texas. So we're going to have our own channel. We're not going to revenue share, and we're going to take the biggest piece of the pie, too, because we're Texas. So how can you be bad at Texas? They said what they were going to do, and they did it. Mm-hmm. You I'm know, more... Tom Osborne said, I just actually watched their, uh, I forget what the, Day by Day, it's kind mm, of mm-hmm. out recently, and Tom Osborne quoted, ahead of the Miami game. You don't think of him as an arrogant person, but if mm-hmm. you if you listen to this statement closely, uh, he told the media, he sa- they were asking him about Miami, and he said, I, I think it's the, the best team that's available to play us. <laughs> Basically, meaning if you read into that, there's yeah. nobody that's going to play with us this year. Yeah. And this was after a loss to Florida State the year before, mm-hmm. and the, Nebraska was just out for blood that next year. And yeah. and so then the rest was history. But I was going to even bring that a little more local. They so the the North the North Carolina firm or kind of the entity yep. buys an undervalued property. Um, particularly they rebuild it or put irrigation mm-hmm. on it and yeah. grow it and then potentially overvalue it and sell it to a foreign entity. Right. Yep. So that's not an uncommon model no. in business, I wouldn't say. I, I've also been like back in Boyd County when I was actively farming full time. There's a the organization, the NRD, is the Niagara Valley or the the water district, natural water, natural resource district. Yeah. yeah, and so and they're locally governed, and you would have different regulation come out of that every three or four years. It felt political, though. It wasn't really based on geology or hydrology. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it was because somebody on the board was a neighbor to somebody that the board didn't like. Or mm-hmm. there were these things that went on that I didn't like to be – I didn't even like to hear about them, let alone. Yeah. And we were trying to get some water right. We were trying yeah. to figure out how to get irrigated in mm-hmm. Boyd County. And and so once you learn some of that process, it did become – it just became a little muddy, and right. I didn't appreciate it. But I think that's what you got going just internationally going on yeah. here is it's it's taken these local things. And the moral of that story was the board – one of the board members of our local place up there said that we they monitor water rights. I worked for – I did an intern for the NRD for my sophomore year in college up there, and part of my job was to go out and – Read test wells. Everyone's favorite guy. I'm here to read your meter. Yeah, I did it oh, for God, minimum yeah. wage, five fifteen an, an hour. I got paid, but I wanted the experience. Yeah, yeah. And so I went out and I met with all these irrigators, and so I met with them and did their certifications. But I also they had monitoring wells around the the whole area, mm-hmm. and I forget the exact number. I want to say. 73 feet was the average, mm-hmm. and it, from the from the 1955 till let's call that 2002 i don't even know close to that the the water level had increased so through all of the irrigation years the water level of the area had actually increased hmm. and nobody would talk about that they were they were uh, basically putting on more compliance more regulation harder mm. to become having a pivot yep. the reason was is corn and bean prices were good and and the public 
perception was farmers were getting rich, we're going to regulate them. Yeah. And so yeah. that's why I'm really careful with these Gotta issues be. because yeah. there's they go into there's so many layers mm-hmm. when and then you're talking other countries. There's there's just a lot of layers there. But then when you bring in a huge city like Tucson or Phoenix, that I mean that's people's lives. Yeah. That's not livestock. That becomes yeah. a little bit more yeah. important in yeah. in my mind. Yeah. This uh, particular article here that um, this was just written a couple of months ago. They were talking about uh, Phoenix and the county that that Phoenix is in. Um, what county is that? I don't know Phoenix's county, but La Paz is the one that's making all these headlines. Okay. Well, either way, Phoenix. Um, it says that that county uses 2.2 billion gallons of water a day. And to put that in perspective, that's more than twice as much as New York City, mm-hmm. despite having half as many people. Well, yeah, you're in, the, you're in the middle of a desert. <laughs> like, what are we talking about here? <laughs> it's like you got the pools, you got the lawn. So they reference got... all that. They reference yeah. all those things, exactly. And so, so then you have to go back and you have to ask yourself, like, it, who really is the bad guy here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and you also, and we've talked about this on other podcast episodes where we talk about like foods and what's available to you and, you know, growing your own things and yeah, dealing yeah. dealing with your own region and, and yeah. working within your means. Mm-hmm. It seems like every time we as a people try to force something like that, like go out to a desert, a desert and build a massive city mm-hmm. and have all of this cool shit yeah. What do you know? It we start. It doesn't work. We start oh having major problems. God, we can't have a twenty four seven three sixty five alfalfa field in the middle of a desert. <laughs> yeah. What? It just. It, just What's it, wrong? It, it seems to me like so common sense. I mean, that's yeah. what we are. This is yeah. common folk podcast. Common folk. It's like so common sense. What are you guys doing? But it's really all in the name of of money, right? I mean, yeah. there's a lot of money to be made in doing that, right? So you know, you're talking about these layers. And how there's always a little bit more to it, right? So we talked about the model for IFC out of North Carolina. They would lease out a farm for a number of years, and then when it got to that brink, sell it. So here's a, here's an example. One of them, I think, was called Riverview Farm. Uh, out of when, Minnesota? Yep. Yeah, yes, I'm there you go. Yeah. Client. They, they were they're, they're oh, ex-client. I mean, oh, they're okay. not active anymore. <laughs> I got to be a little careful with that. Right. But yeah. Riverview's yeah. a big uh, one down there. Especially now that I'm in financials. Eh? That becomes a lot bigger deal. Yeah, sure. They are um, they are multi-site, huge corporation, yep. very, um, in my perspective, a very innovative, good farm. Yeah. Now, I'll let you finish and tell, poke holes in that, but I've had nothing nope. but uh, success stories with them and people's lives that they've changed for the yep. better. So this is the success, right? IFC leases out to Riverview. Riverview out of nothing, you know, it used to be a desert. Uh, they, they start a farm in an unregulated water, La Paz County, and they build this thing up to 8,000 dairy cows. Like it takes quite a bit to run. They're, 8, they're coming to get the the fall when Saudi leaves. They're going to have the cows there to feed mm. on the same alfalfa ground. So here, well, and I'm, I will get to that. But this is where we're at now. They sold out to the Saudis. Uh, um, mm. IFC says, "All right, lease is over. We're selling now." And Riverview's like, "Well, we're not buying for what you think you're going to sell it for." Saudi's like, "We need it. We, we just need it." And we, now we get control too. So they actually backed it off. There's only six thousand dairy cows down there now but there's 165,000 in Saudi Arabia uh, no no 165 uh, slaughter cattle on feedlots on the same ground so Mm. it went from 8,000 cows to what 
seventy-three thousand cows. Hundred and seventy-three. In like two yep. years, in two years' time, yeah. and that's what I'm talking about. Like they're just over there, and they don't care. They're Sounds like the rules. cheap feed. Bring the cows to the feed, and yeah. Riverview's doing that, and Saudi's yeah. yeah. trying to figure out what to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, that's they're in the middle of that right now. Um, so, Interesting. And that's what. <laughs> That's where <laughs> they're taking too much advantage of it. If they could just play ball, have a little grasp of what the locals are saying and what they can get away with, like Riverview did. Riverview did a great job. 8,000 dairy cows probably don't belong in the middle of a desert and to be a thriving farm. Probably shouldn't be there. Well, but the issue Riverview runs into is they, they don't look good next to Minneapolis either. And mm. so uh, Minnesota, as you guys would know, they're very congested farming mm-hmm. community, very similar to right across the border here mm-hmm. into Iowa. And just the population stifles what you can do as far as mm-hmm. growing. And so they're they're an example of somebody that's going to look for a competitive advantage around the country. And once they can figure out, because they're in our area. I don't know if you knew that, oh, but yeah, they're, they're heavily in Boyd County yep, and, and, yep. And, and not so much Boyd County, but the surrounding counties. There's three or four operations and so from my perspective with my past, I actually look at those companies as somewhat of the innovative future. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I, I'm not as popular in, in some farm circles because I, I do think that – He's the meter guy. Yeah, I just check mm-hmm. your water meter usually. <laughs> that's, that's my role. But um, I, I believe there's so much wealth coming down the pipeline in terms of the baby boomers leaving the rural communities. They're going to leave real estate behind some way, shape, or form. And who's going to manage it? Riverview out of Minneapolis. I think you're. Oh, I don't think it's actually Minneapolis, well, Minnesota. I mean, what what type of company mm-hmm. can do that? You the, you've got a great point. That's something that I hadn't really thought a lot about. I I've known over the last you know. Well, it would be like the last ten years here, working closely with farmers, but being around, being living here my whole life, that young guys can't get into this game, and it and there's uh, generational wealth is too deep. Yeah, it, I mean you can't compete. I always tell young folks to to look for partnering opportunities, right, right. look to work into, and essentially that's how I got in. I worked yeah. into a, a commercial alfalfa program, and that was my way into production agriculture. Yep. And that's what I was going to touch on next. What, what we continue to see over and over is the boomers retiring. They don't have any kids, or if they do have kids, the kids aren't interested at all. You know, they've moved away. Mm-hmm. Um, you do have that young farmhand that's working for them that's hoping, you know, he or she is working their way up and is going to be able to get some kind of deal or something. It doesn't normally work that way. And I've, I've thought to myself, like, man, what is going to happen to all these farms? And I never really put that second piece together, what you're talking about there, where, well, these big conglomerates or uh, foreign companies, they've got the money. They'll come in and buy it. And that's what we're going to be seeing more and more of, I think. And that is that what you're saying? I think so, yeah. And to, you brought something up earlier about um, – at one point, there was a big inflationary market back in 2011, 10. It kind of was, in hindsight, it was 2008 to about 2014. But mm-hmm. ag products were really getting mm-hmm. inflated. Corn, beans, yep, energy yep. was high. Fuel was going up. And we, I had a, had a sit down with a couple of really big clients. And we were discussing what to do with hay. And I... I was scared to give them a price because I knew the market just kept going up and up and up. And 
I I basically let them come up with a number, and the number then was three hundred dollars a ton. And I after we made the deal, I said, "How are you guys doing this?" Mm-hmm. And he goes, "Kyle, we have one hundred fifty thousand mouths to feed every morning and every night. We don't have a choice right now. We have to have the feed. They got to procure the they feed. Had they had to. They had to do that. And yeah. and they're big land holdings too. So mm-hmm. they're they're mm-hmm. they got a lot of different things going, but." At that time, as a small thinker, small farmer, I didn't realize that that's how these markets get created. Somebody's got to find the top yeah, uh, where yeah, somebody, you know, in yeah. an inflationary market. And they were smart enough to know that we got to, we got to, these guys are carrying around 12,000 tons a year. We got to figure mm-hmm. out where it's going yeah, and at what price. They didn't need to do all of our business, but they needed to do something to find out where the market's going. Mm-hmm. That's why I didn't want to give a number. And right. so we ended up settling it at a good number for us. I, I think in hindsight, a good number from them and t- it's still a valid number today. You don't want to be the doof and say 150 and then they look at you like, oh my God, we would pay double that easy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Our opening yeah. offer was double that. Oh, I've been that guy <laughs> way more than I care to admit. Don't worry about that. I think anybody in this business has in one way or another. Yeah. So um, it's how you learn. Right. So backtracking, you know, getting back into all those different layers with this story. Um, when La Paz opened it up in 1982, shortly thereafter, the city of Phoenix bought 20 square miles in La Paz County and leased it out for farming. And the uh, thought was, well, we need to have water, and this could just be our easy little pipeline for to the aquifer. Like, we'll run out of ours, but we don't, don't need to worry about that. We can get as much as we need from La Paz County, just 90 miles down the road. Then... Uh, Fast forward to 2008 when IFC started doing all this leasing, the city of Phoenix just sold that 20 square miles back to IFC. Okay, you needed water back in the 80s, but you don't need water now. Hmm. And every news channel's carrying your water shortage every night. Right. Yes. I mean, that doesn't make sense, does it? No, that doesn't make sense, <laughs> right. does it? What, what's going it only, on? It only oh, makes sense if, if what you're selling so, is worth a whole lot more than what you could use it for, right? Yep. So, okay. How, how did this come to be? What's going on here? So who's funding IFC? And this little independent, stupid journalist that I looked up, he, he figured it out, the aha moment. And $175 million of Arizona's uh, retirement fund out of the retirement system invested into IFC. Mm. So your pension is paying for you to be bought out. So all your government officials, all your school teachers mm-hmm. got you by the balls now too. Hey, do you not want your pension? Mm-hmm. And, they, and they probably were having trouble with funding of the pension and they're like, hey, here we go. Here we go. We got all this water rights and, um, you know, once – and then if you want to put on your tinfoil hat, and I love to do that. It's kind of fun talking about conspiracies, especially when they're not conspiracies. When it's just <laughs> all out in the front of you here, uh, you can look at it like – they always knew that they were playing chess, that we're going to be able to get this back because it's going to go to the Saudis. They're going to muddle it up. And there's actually a clause in this the cell. We get first right to buy it back Yeah, if it goes Which sideways. Which isn't, isn't totally uncommon. Of but course yeah. it's not uncommon, but just think of that. Okay, we know it's going to go sideways because you guys are going to F it up. And then we're going to end back up with it. We're going we're gonna to sell it, make that money, then we're going to get back for pennies on the dollar. Or, yeah. or the governor's going to come in and make it worth nothing. Yeah, or the whoever it was, the mayor, or whoever who were we yeah, talking about, Hobbs. whoever the lady was. Well, and, uh, the attorney general, uh, this new gal too, Chris 
Mays is her name. She was working hand in hand with uh, Hobbs. Um, and she's the one that was like, her whole platform was, we need to get these Saudi Arabians out of here. This is unbelievable. That It's like. That's kind of your political narrative sure. from everybody yeah. I've yeah. talked to on this. Any type of issue like this one is, yeah. that's where I'm always skeptical. I'm like, wait a minute. There's right. more to this. So let's, let's touch on that real quick uh, where we talk about like the foreign ownership. Because I think that's that's part of this, and there's a lot of a lot of what people are talking about right now. Yeah, like yep. all these companies coming in and buying up all this farmland. It's mm-hmm. going crazy, right? But everything that I've seen and that I continue to look up, it, that doesn't quite seem to be the case. It's just a bunch of like people using that corporations for well, I mean, for some kind of political motivation, wherever the case may be, to make them look good or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like what this lady did to prevent the Saudis from using water. In the grand scheme of things, really, it's peanuts compared yeah, to their yeah. entire farm. Like yeah. you pointed out, yeah. it's just it, it's, it's just too. It's they an just, indicator of what could be, but is the story blown out of proportion a little bit too? It's they've only to denied say. them two new leases. They still have all the other leases that they've had. They right. got they got eight within the last year, I think, eight new pumps drilled. So like, oh, you can't do these next two. You know, it's just the first uh, domino to fall, and what I believe they're going to be able to get this land back. You know. So when you look at some of these foreign investors, it was just something that I looked up quick online, and there was a number of, of uh, websites that said the exact same thing. Um, here, a couple of numbers. 1.3 billion acres of privately owned ag land in the U.S. Um, of those 1.3, foreign entities fully or partially own 40 million. So it's 1.3 billion. They own 40 million. Three to five percent. Exactly. Yeah, I was going to say three percent is yeah. kind of the yeah. my yeah. research. So, like, while that's something that we definitely need to be smart about and keep our eyes on, I mean, are we really getting this jacked up over three percent? Well, and that's what I was saying. Like, this was the, when I first dove into this. This isn't a new story, and there's been some really good ones that came out four or five years ago on this very topic. But since it was a firm out of a corporation out of uh, North Carolina, it wasn't that big of a deal. You know, we didn't really put that much into it. But now, man, that really grinds my gears that these Saudi Arabians are over here, you know, and they're 3%. And they list the, what do they got here? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, top 10 foreign ownerships. Number one's Canada. Saudi Arabia isn't even on this list. Mm-hmm. Ireland is number 10, and they've got uh, 760,000 acres. Yeah. And I think a lot of it's woods too, or forests. Yeah, Canada is yeah. mostly forest ground, I believe. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It just seems like I mean, again, I, it, there's definitely problems, right? And we got to figure those things out. But I feel like there's a lot bigger problems that we are doing ourselves. And when I say we, I mean like you know some of our leaders, mm-hmm. some of the people who are in charge of things. Yeah, that they need to be held accountable. We oh, want this big that. news story yeah. of we're going to hold the Saudis accountable. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. But what about all the BS that we're doing? Yeah. And I, I kind of wonder, I, so I took a look back at all the different governors, you know, who gets credit, who gets blamed, you know, Obama did this. Well, yeah, but then Trump did that and made it worse. Well, I wouldn't have done that if it wouldn't have been for Clintons, right? <laughs> you know how that goes. And, unintended consequences. Well, and it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's here now, right? I got to yeah. get my votes now and I'll blame it on the previous guy. Uh, in Arizona, it really does go back and forth between yeah, Republican governor democratic governor so like they're always a swing state yeah so from midterms and regular 
Yeah, so from 1973 up until now, it's really gone back and forth. I couldn't really pin it on, okay, he's the one that passed the legislation that allowed for this unregulated. No, it was her. You know, like it really went back and forth. I couldn't just pin it on one party, which I think that's been the case kind of all along. They work together, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. The donkeys and the elephants, or whatever the mascots be. The swamp. <laughs> Drain the swamp. And to give a little bit of perspective on the tr- on the trend, roughly 10 years ago it was 2%, and now it's a little over 3 mm-hmm. So in 10 years it's gone up 1% foreign ownership? Pro- probably kind of significant yeah. in terms of that. I mean, you always look at the direction of things and mm-hmm. what, what's coming, but... I think in a in a world of globalization, you there's probably yeah. a healthy uh, amount of that that could go on. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to take right. a side here today. Yeah, but yeah. I no, think it's we're demanding. This is common folk conceivable. Need to. <laughs> well, and we touched on earlier. I mean, what, I don't have the numbers pulled up. I'm sure we could find them with a little research of how much foreign land yeah. U.S. companies or U.S. government owns. Oh yeah, like, especially I mean, in the probably a lot in third world countries, especially like we'll take advantage of that all yeah. day long. Yeah, you know. And I don't want anybody to think that I'm for foreign companies owning U.S. farm ground. I'm not for it, but I'm trying to like bring a little bit of perspective, yeah. like understand it's not quite as bad as we're being led to believe it is, but that doesn't mean we still don't need to do something about it. Or that I'm a pro U.S. empire take over that third world country. Right. It's just right. the reality of the beast. Yeah, right. and I, I do think state governments are – I was just – like I said, I was looking through our our old um, American Farm Bureau committee. We have a kind of a dialogue over these hot topics every so often, and, and it appears that a lot of your states are putting some policy around this mm. to mm-hmm. help – help regulate it not and maybe not necessarily not let it happen but they are they're putting they're, they're making it a topic which i think yeah. is good yeah of course it is there's a, the last thing i'll finish with on this on this land and you guys can talk about any, anything else that you want to add to it but um were, are you familiar with that company that came around and they still kind of exist uh, but they were big for a little while making a big push called tillable I, I am aware of Tillable, don't know much about them. Okay. I don't know a whole lot about them, but here's what I do know. And it's because of um, some of the, the farm families that I've worked directly with. So we talk about, people are worried about these foreign companies coming in, driving up land prices, land values, taking taking land from the local guy, you know, pushing people out, all these kinds of things. Yeah. So this company comes along. I don't know if they're U.S. based, but at least I know everybody that's working for them is in the U.S. So they're pushing it. They make an effort to go in and get all the ownership of all the all the land in, in XYZ area and figure out what is being leased and what isn't. You know, so it's like someone owns it, but they're not farming it. They're, they're renting it to another farmer, um, cash rent, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they go ahead and start directly contacting all of these property owners and making big offers. So effectively starting to push all these people out. What they end up finding out is that they didn't realize on the ground level, a lot of these people, as an example, like the guy who owns it but doesn't farm it, leases it to his son. So they call, Mm. and they're trying to buy it from dad out of underneath the son. And then they're also calling son because he owns some over here, and they started stepping all over themselves. But the point is is that you took this this U.S. company in here doing every bit as bad as someone like the Saudis coming in and buying up some some land and using water. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's all internal, and we're, yeah. we're, we're causing all these tr- all this trouble for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Americans are causing all this trouble for other Americans, pushing yeah. out farmers, 
running people off their ground, driving prices, all these kinds of things. Yeah. But meanwhile, you know, we don't do a whole lot of talking about that. No. No, well, I was actually, yeah. it's interesting that um, I was at a meeting probably a month ago and, and the presenter was talking about how uh, evil John Deere in this context, and, and I'm playing neutral mm-hmm. on that, but this was how the presentation was, was using your data, your farm data yeah. from mm-hmm. their telematics. Starlink or whatever. Yeah, yeah, operations stuff. And they were using your, your data to feed into their larger database yeah. to that then they would ultimately sell down to maybe tillable, yep. you know, to yep. these other right. companies. Yep. And they would have data on your ground. And mm-hmm. all these, I was definitely the youngest one in this room, all these older folks, I mean, he was scaring the heck out of them. Sure. And I'm sitting here thinking, and he was trying to tell them, well, they want this data because they want to be able to figure out kind of strategically what land values should be versus what one neighbor mm-hmm. offers it and another neighbor may pay for it. And he had them so scared. And I'm like, really? Because we've been collecting data on ground since for sure before the 1930s mm-hmm. yeah. to establish a value. And yeah. I'm like, this stuff isn't scary if you've got yeah. the right yeah. people yeah. looking at it yeah. and execute it. Now, if there's ill intent, I think it <laughs> sure. should be, yep. it should come to the surface. But to some extent, the the way these things, and then the other issue from the IRS perspective, a lot of this land can't sell without huge tax implications. Because if grandpa got the farm for $100 an acre cost basis, and now it's worth $10,000 an acre, mm-hmm. he can't sell that without a $9,000 capital gains. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times you'll have these entities, call it tillable, whoever, that are trying to push change and push transition, and and the the tax people are telling them you can't do this. You and so once once in a while, they'll hang a son or daughter on it, and they'll say, "I'm going to deed this to you." And let's say that son or daughter doesn't want to farm and they want to sell out. Okay, Dad, I'll mm-hmm. take the farm, but I'm selling it the second you look away. Mm-hmm. Of course, they don't always know that until it happens. Sure. The son or daughter has to sell a piece of ground. The the proceeds from the sale of a piece of ground have to pay the capital gains, mm-hmm. even if they want right, to keep right. some real estate. Mm-hmm. It's such a big yeah. uh, tax issue, mm-hmm. and so that that uh, that's going to keep some of those tillables a little bit away from yeah. changing the industry too fast. And what a lot of those guys were doing. So maybe to give a little bit of clarification on it, is they were coming in and they weren't. Um, they weren't buying the ground, so they were going to the owner and they were saying, basically, we we like we kind of want to be your broker. We we can get you. So you're getting two hundred. What are you getting right now? Two hundred dollars an acre. We'll get you three fifty. So then that farmer or that owner goes to the guy who's farming it and says, Hey, this guy just called me and offered another hundred fifty an acre. Or it might even be the son in R- some right, cases. Exactly. That's what I'm know, saying. Yeah. So it's yeah. things like then that. Then you got an upset son. Right. And then when you <laughs> when you talk about um, you know, companies like John Deere and that we could do a whole nother episode on that, but the data that those guys are collecting is unbelievable. And when you talk about, you know, ground and values mm-hmm. and things like that, I mean imagine if you could take some of this data that the farmer didn't realize he was giving you that's that will show exactly how many acres are farmable mm-hmm. because the equipment GPS maps it. Mm-hmm. So they know exactly how much is getting farmable. They know exactly the average yields they're getting off of it. They know exactly the inputs that are happening, you know, that they're, they're having to put in it. So yeah. they can put all these costs together. And now all of a sudden yeah. they've got like this really, uh, 
comprehensive information oh, yeah. about this acre. I will speak to that a little bit because that's the that's the perception in the industry. Mm-hmm. That that I actually took a precision ag class uh-huh. just as an adult lately um, for the purpose of understanding. Because I I went in, I actually rotated from commercial alfalfa where they we didn't have all those technologies right, per right. se. Yeah. We had some, but not near like row crop. And as my family grew and time constraints, I wanted to get into something a little uh, less stressful. I mentioned the PTSD earlier. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So row crop had a safer route to go. And so instantly I became really interested in the telematics and Mm -hmm. the John Deere operations. Mm -hmm. And I loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it, took a class on it. But it was – I spent a lot of time, more than the, the common farm manager, on figuring out how to link all that stuff mm-hmm. and how to get good data. It's really hard to come up with good data. There's yeah. going to be farms that do it. There, that, that will be the future, but we're, we're a long ways <clears throat> from that. At yeah. The, because I mentioned my network, I, I run it. I'm like, how are you guys getting good data yet? Are you, mm-hmm. you know, are you getting good yield data? Are you getting good overlay with chemical fertilizer? All these things, and and nobody could give me a straight really? up. Yeah, it's going really good. I got hmm. it dialed in. Yeah, yeah. N- nobody, hmm. and so that makes me. I, I know that that's the perception, yep. but yep. I don't think we're there as a reality. Sure. Yep, yep. I can see that. It reminds me of a story back in the the Agzyme days where mm-hmm. I was, and I got to see it from another angle too because I uh, sold advertising to a big John Deere implement, so I'd buddy up with those guys. And I'm like, oh, this co-op over here, they're they're running your guys' high boys, your sprayers. And he goes, oh, yeah, that's so-and-so. He needs to slow it down. That guy drives it. Now. I'm like, whoa, you keep such a good eye on him. You know that he drives <laughs> a little too fast. Like I, you know, being a simpleton as I am, I found that kind of like a little shocking. Like mm-hmm. not only does he know how much they spray, how many hours, like I get that. But he knows that he this guy's been driving that high boy a little too fast for my liking. <laughs> so yeah. It's pretty I'm wild. A, I'm a data nut. I I love ag data specifically. And on our commercial hay side, we could actually tell. So we had a productive hour cost per piece of mm-hmm. equipment. And I could tell. And everybody would run around a 85 to 93% efficiency. And I'll explain that a little bit. But you... Let's say you're paying, just as an example, you're paying somebody $20 an hour. The equipment cost hour might be 23, 24, 22. Mm -hmm. And so to speak to your point, uh, we had an older guy that the whole community loved and and felt like he was such a good operator. And I was sitting here looking at the data being $35, (laughs) $40 an equipment hour. And he was really good at keeping track of things. So I knew what was going on. He wasn't driving fast enough, what the equipment capacity should be. Mm-hmm. And so the data will give you a lot of fragmented good I – mean, it'll yeah. give you some management tips, mm-hmm. but it's it's still not there. Now, he, yeah. this co-op manager that you're speaking of, he may – he may have been able to look at average miles per hour through the field and mm-hmm. see that that guy's off the charts or whatever. Yeah. Oh, but, yeah. I, and he didn't deny it. I went and talked to the other guy, the actual operator from this co-op, and he's like, oh, yeah, I, I cranked that son of a bitch up. I know, <laughs> yeah. And me. there's certain equipment that you have to go fast. Like a, a windrower, if you're not – if you have a razor cutter – and you're going I would I would get mad at people for going too slow yeah. because you're costing me money and you're costing you a job. Oh, the co-op loved the guy. Don't get me wrong. It's just that the John Deere dealer like, "Man, that's on a 4-year lease and you're beating the hell out of it. You're you're really putting that high boy at it, you know. That's going to be wore out when we get it back." <laughs> 
that story you were telling about that old boy that was working for you that makes me think of that movie Moneyball. Like you, like you have all this perspective of like, this guy's good, this guy's good, mm-hmm. this guy's got the best story. All these people like yeah. this guy, you know. But then when you sit down and really, really look at the numbers, you're like, actually, this one that no one really likes is yeah. the performer. Let's, yeah, let's whatever. Let's get him in there. Yeah, yeah. that's but, pretty interesting. Yeah, we're looking at on base percentage here as the main determining factor into winning games. And this guy that everybody loves doesn't get on base. Right. Yeah. He's fun to hang out with, but boy, his production yeah. is not doing very well. No, um, we, we need to, at some point, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more um, afterwards about some of the stuff that you're into with like the, the data and the analytics and stuff. Oh, I, think, I had one more comment just to leave on that note because I, I didn't want to forget it. Mm-hmm. But when Russia invaded Ukraine, the story goes that they shut down 40,000 John Deere tractors. I, I can't I personally that, validate yeah. mm-hmm. that, but that the same presenter was talking mm-hmm. about that. And so through their system of data analytics, they were able to actually shut down another country's machines. Yeah. Again, a little bit of a scare tactic. I'd have to learn more, but that is yeah. that does tractors what kind I of make can, you think. It, it does, yeah. And what I can validate for you on that particular topic is that I work with a lot of farmers on equipment in particular, heavy equipment, big row crop stuff. <clears throat> and they, the manufacturers absolutely have a direct connect to that machine through a modem. It's very rudimentary. It's like your, um, like your SIM card in your phone, you know, that gives the connection to this thing. And they can control everything from that. I had a, a, a customer of my own. They, they send updates over the air to these machines now. Yep. Um, vehicles today get it as well. Mm-hmm. I had a customer who had this update and you can ignore it and you can keep operating, but you can only ignore it so long. And he got a phone call from his dealership and said, I know you're ignoring that update. You've got about 60 more operating hours. And then that machine is going to park where it's sitting until you up accept that update. Mm-hmm. And by the update, by by the way, the update will be ten ninety nine more on the subscription. That's how I always <laughs> right. felt. I don't know. Uh, if that's yeah, true. Yeah. Yeah. So they they I literally they literally were going to shut his machine down. So the point is, is that yes, they they one hundred percent can do that. Yeah. Wow. Well, and I mean, OnStar's been doing it yeah. with GM vehicles sure. for how long now? Twenty something years. Like there was always the advertisement of, yeah. oh, your car gets stolen call the cops if they can get on the phone with onstar onstar will tell them where it is then the cop will pull it behind it and say hey onstar shut it down and they do it's and then you then they then they get your car back it's for your safety it's for your benefit and that's where i think like this to tie it back into our story here uh with the land now that we got saudis involved and they shouldn't be doing that and they're abusing the land you know like we've been doing for a long time um now the local governments the state and federal governments now they're going to get to put in their water regulations that they want. Paw County or what Paws, uh, La Paz County that didn't have any regulations, now you are and you're asking for it. Like I really think that's what's – you want to go next level, I think that's what's happening. And, uh, yeah, it's a political ploy. Uh, listen to a really good podcast on this from Reveal, some pretty hotshot journalists. You know, they love yep. to do the I got you deal. And they had the gal I was talking about, the attorney general, what's uh, Chris Mays, and she ran her platform. This is an outrage, Saudi Arabians, and then we're sending it over to them. You know, mm-hmm. um, that was her. That was like one of her big stances. What got her elected? And so he's doing the investigating, and he's meeting with her, and uh, he goes, "So do you know where you know where IFC got this money from? You know where they got this money, so they could?" <laughs> she goes, "No, but I'm." Sure, sure you're, you're gonna, gonna tell, tell me. 
And uh, so he told your her. Your constituents. Yeah. Well, from your pension fund. Yeah. Right. Yeah. From the, from the yeah. Arizona State Pension Fund. How are they going to feel when you when they find out that you know that information? <laughs> right. So, so I wrote down the question word for word. Do you believe it's a conflict of interest when the state officials that are supposed to be managing the water usage also have a financial benefit from allowing the Saudis to use it? Hmm. hmm. And here's her answer. Yeah, no, I, I'm just going to not comment on that. And then she went blah, 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 blah. I'm yeah. like, you liar. You know. She at knows. The be- at the beginning of this, I think, Kyle, you said something along the lines of like – any of these kinds of stories, like you're you're kind of apprehensive to really comment on it. There's a, you feel like there's a whole lot more to learn about it first. Like there's a lot more going on, and I think that's very smart. You just touched on it right there. Boom. I mean, all we see is the headlines yep. and the quick snippets. Yep. And you know the the governor or whoever she is is saving Arizona and yep. kicking the Saudis out. Get them out of here. Get us regulation, please. But wait, there's more. Mm-hmm. And then we start to seeing all these other things. We put this wheel in motion, and then it's going to come back around. We're going to benefit twofold. We're going to yeah. finally get to regulate this stupid county that we've been playing like a pawn the whole time. Yeah. Like I, it sounds really crude. But that's how I—that's how I'm measuring this one up. It's wild. So I guess to kind of get to the end of all this, Kyle, what do you? What are you involved in today? What are you spending most of your time doing? So I do ag estate planning. I'm mm-hmm. a comprehensive financial planner in Oakland, Nebraska. Um, a job with my family and kind of my farm brought me to Oakland, but a year into that, I could tell it just wasn't going to be what I'm passionate about. <clears throat> and towards the end of that stint, I actually um, spent a little time visiting with the president of Nebraska Farm Bureau and the CFO there on how we can get farm families to have a comprehensive approach from management transition, estate planning, tax planning. Um, invest, you mentioned pensions. How do you bring in an investment package into farming mm-hmm. to where uh, a son or daughter can build a retirement account without it based on land that might sell to Saudi Arabia, for example? But mm-hmm. basically kind of a comprehensive approach. And I got that opportunity of a childhood friend of mine. Andy might know him, Eric Luber in Norfolk, Nebraska with Foundation mm-hmm. Wealth Advisors. He played baseball with me when I was younger before I – played baseball with you. So okay. that, that's our connection. His grandpa had a farm back, has a ranch back there, has since passed away. But um, basically in Oakland, my my family didn't want to move out of the area. And I was in finance and studying for my MBA. And I just reached out to them and, and actually for a cubicle to just kind of figure out what I was going to do with life at that point. And um, he actually... He said, we've got a retiring financial advisor there, and, and if you'd be interested. And so within a week, I, I tagged onto them, and I run their satellite branch of Foundation Wealth Advisors in Oakland and then farm hmm. passively. Um, we have about 1,000 acres back home in Boyd County that we, like I said, I passively operate. I've got a couple staff members that are very, very good. They've been with me for a long time and kind of lived through some of those big big ag years that we got fortunate mm-hmm. to be part of and and fortunately for me that's those experiences I draw on to help my current clientele mm-hmm. and so that's that's kind of what we're doing today awesome do uh is there any benefit for you in terms of what you have going on to let folks listening to this 
know how to contact you? Does that make sense? Are you guys yeah. looking for any? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm in Oakland, Nebraska. I'm on Facebook, Kyle Lechtenberg, Foundation Wealth Advisors, uh, LinkedIn. I mean, I'm okay. kind of on all your normal venues. Yep. And I'm okay. excited for you guys. We, I was telling Andy, we did a, a podcast with a, a friend of mine from Michigan for almost a year. It okay. was called uh, The Kitchen Table. And just through some life events, we kind of let it fade away. But I do have a strong passion for telling rural folks, rural families and rural ag specifically, telling their story and being part of it and, and really helping, helping that demographic of our country. So that's, that's what my passion is, and that's why I'm in the role I am now. And, and yeah. forums like what you guys are doing, I think, are helpful for that. So yeah. we've got a lot of rural folks that listen to this, um, and I'm sure there's some that could get some benefit from you know talking to folks like you. I mean, there always are. Oh yeah. Um, and and I'll you know I'll be honest, people who have listened who have listened to our podcast for a while know, for me personally, I hate money. I'll flat out tell you, <laughs> I the, hate it. <laughs> that was the one of our... It might have been the name of one yeah, of them. Yeah, it was the, it was uh, the title of one of them. <laughs> I, I, I dread thinking about it, dealing with it, working with it, in anything that it has to do in my life, other than just getting the job done for me. Um, and that's what it is. I mean, people don't realize it, it's a currency. It, yeah. All its job is to be an intermediary between the services and goods that we provide each other. For and, sure, yep. And so our role as a company is just to help people feel secure in how they handle it, how they manage it, mm-hmm. and how what they invest in, and and uh, so I, you're not alone on that, by the way. It's and and what I was getting at is, you know, in speaking with you today, um, it, it it's been a great conversation. I've I've definitely appreciated. I think for any for anybody who feels the way that I do, I think would be comfortable speaking with someone like you with your approach. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's great. I appreciate that. Appreciate, yeah. Well, thank you guys you for having it. me on. I appreciate being here. Yeah. yeah. So uh, parting gifts, we like to get folks some stuff. You get a Common Folk t-shirt. Um, we'll ship you out a couple of things from the podcast. Um, and for folks listening, we're still giving away merch. Mm-hmm. If you get on Ooh, and and, uh, okay. and do a review, right? Get yeah. on the Apple, get on the uh, on the Spotify. And and get on YouTube, too. That that would really help us. And before sooner than later, YouTube's going to be all in on podcast uh they're gonna do it. google owns youtube the two largest search engines on the planet are owned by the same company um but anyway google podcasts are going away and it's going to get transitioned into youtube we're already on it we're already doing the thing um and it's a really cool way to interact uh, yep. uh, you can just straight up burn us <laughs> or yeah. give us a thumbs up whatever you want to do I, I actually like to hear all of it on the sports betting side i love it when they throw a shade you know I'm like, that's right I <laughs> hey cost then you, you know <laughs> yeah. then you know you gotta gotta adapt or <laughs> throw that guy away whatever you want to do <clears throat> yeah yeah right? for sure so definitely check that out andy's been working hard on the uh on the youtube side of things if you leave us a uh a review uh, let us know. Shoot me a message, yeah. Ben at FarmFocused, F-O-C-U-S-E-D dot com. Uh, let me know that you left it. I'll shoot you a t-shirt. I'll shoot you a hat, whatever works. Um, we just need to continue to grow those to yep. keep doing what we're doing. So exactly right. appreciate everybody listening. You guys got anything else? We covered a lot there. Yeah, we did. We did. <laughs> it was very interesting. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, I guess we'll close it down, huh? Later. All right. See ya. Thanks. Thanks.